Welcome to Season 9 of the Leadership Educator Podcast, your source for knowledge and expertise on facilitating leadership learning. Are you passionate about leadership education? Do you want to expand your resource toolbox with practical teaching, learning, and program design strategies? This is the podcast for you. If you haven't done so already, please hit subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. Before we get into this episode, Dan and I are calling out all of you leadership educators. Are you struggling to spice up your learning activities? Do you need somebody to bounce your ideas off of that has no stakes in the game? Meaning they're not your students, they're not your faculty peers, they're not your dean? Well, connect with us for expert guidance on creating engaging and inclusive classroom learning environments. Are you an academic leader seeking a program reviewer? Dan has availability this semester and would love to help you elevate your approach with customized feedback on your program. You can reach out to both of us through LinkedIn today. Well, hello and welcome to Season 9 of the Leadership Educator Podcast. I'm Van Jenkins, Professor of Leadership and Organizational Studies at the University of Southern Maine. And I am Lauren Bullock, Assistant Professor of Instruction at Temple University. This season, our ninth season, um, if we had funding for an applause sound, I think this is where we would put in the applause for reaching our ninth season. The crowd's going wild, Lauren, don't worry. Um, This season, we're discussing something I think that's pretty cool, uh, generative learning for leadership educators. So for us, we describe this as an approach to leadership development and education that focuses on cultivating generative thinking and behaviors in leaders. Um, For us, generative thinking is the ability to create new possibilities, think systemically, and generate innovative solutions to complex problems. Um, We know that we're being faced with different problems every single day. They're getting harder to to make decisions around, and they're coming at us even faster. I think I saw a meme on social media where it said, adulting isn't one crisis after another. It's multiple crises all at the same time for the rest of your life. And I'm like, oh, I'm totally adulting then right now. Um, But it it involves this shift from reactive or problem-solving mindset to a more proactive and creative mindset. If we know those complex problems are coming, we can accept that and move to try to be ahead of those. When we talk about this in leadership education, we're really looking at what we call generative leadership education, developing leaders who can navigate uncertainty, inspire collaboration, and create positive change in their organizations and communities. Breaking it down a little further, it involves experiential learning, reflection, and the development of skills, thinking about, like we said, systems thinking, thinking about an adaptive leadership, and even emotional intelligence. So we know our audience is familiar with those concepts. Our hope is to talk to our guests about how they're thinking about those concepts and in what ways they're changing now that we've moved through the pandemic. So this season, you'll hear from leadership educators, faculty members, and other disciplines who have won awards for their teaching. You'll hear from scholars who are are experts in artificial intelligence, ethics, social phenomena, disruptions, adaptive challenges, as well as emerging trends and issues affecting leaders in this space. And I just want to pause and say for our listeners, we're taking our time in, in explaining this so you get a sense of kind of how rich and complex our season is going to be, because we'll have folks coming in from different spaces all season long. So I just want to make sure that I'm pausing and, and saying that um, because our, our broad question and, and those of us who have listened to us for m- multiple seasons know we ask kind of one big old question. Um, our one big old question this season is, how are we processing what's happening and affecting our classrooms and campuses as we're trying to develop curriculum that teach, evaluate leadership learning and build community? Yeah. Thank you, Lauren, for the lengthy intro. It's so important to, to set the context. And context is in my top five Clifton Strengths theme. So I love talking about context. And I love history. And today we have um, a historian on with us. So today we have Dr. Libby Bischoff uh, from our university, the University of Southern Maine, who holds several roles. Uh, Libby is a professor of history. She's a recently adorned university historian and is the executive director 
of the Osher Map Library and Smith Center for Cartographic Education. Uh, she's highly respected at USM. Don't let her tell you otherwise. I was really lucky to meet her early in my career at the university serving on probably, I don't know how many different committees we, we've been on, but we pulled off a teaching symposium with a, with a small group together when I was the university's faculty fellow for a campus-wide Clifton Strengths program in 2018, where we brought uh, renowned teaching and learning scholar and a former guest on our podcast, uh, Dr. D. Fink to USM. He did a day-long workshop on his integrated course design model. Um, and then we sandwiched that alongside some presentations and workshops on pedagogy and, and andragogy hosted by a variety of USM faculty. Libby's well-known for her outstanding faculty advising practices and her innovative and experiential teaching approaches. Uh, she's experimented widely during the pandemic with her teaching practices and even more recently incorporated some artificial intelligence, specifically some chat GPT into her teaching. So Libby, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Lauren. Nice to be with you both. And thank you for that very kind introduction, Dan, <laughs> particularly on a Monday morning. It's a nice way to kind of wake up and get going in the day. We were all smiling during your Clifton Strengths introduction and context. Context is my number one as an historian, and we were all sharing that that context is important to us. So any day that starts with rich context is a good day for me, and I'm delighted to be here and with your audience. So good morning. I love that. I have context and futuristic, so I'm like a really good time. Oh, you're a complicated person, Lauren. We might have to talk about that later. Those are at odds with each other. All kinds of complexity <laughs> dynamics today. I have to understand what we've done, to, and, and I love thinking about what else we could do based on what we've done, so... Just never ends on this podcast with that. So, uh, but it's what makes it fun. And so, in recent history, so um, funny preparing for the for the podcast. So, Libby and I ran into each other um, outside of the university. We both were attending a Ben Folds concert at the State Theater in, in downtown Portland. What was that Thursday night? Last Thursday night? So, it was Thursday night. Yeah, yeah, it was a lovely, lovely solo piano show. Very storytelling. Yes, yes, lots of storytelling. Just, just an incredible performance. Only second time I've. I've seen him last time I was with the five and just just blew me away. But what, what a uh, renowned love for for Ben Folds and, and his music. And and he closed with the uh, with the song The Luckiest, which was which has a deep meaning for, for me and my wife. It was the song we uh, it was part of the uh, our wedding proposal, as well as the song that we walked down to the aisle to. But I won't get into, the, oh, that's into the sappy stuff. And so but anyway, I'd, we'd never seen him perform that live. And so that was just a treat that he closed with that. And so. But we digress. So with teaching and stuff and history and, and experiential learning, Libby. So so back in, I want to say it was April or early May, we had a, a smaller teaching and learning symposium at USM. You gave a brief talk on at that teaching symposium. You were sharing some of your strategies that you'd used in your course that spring, I believe, regarding chat GPT. I really appreciated that scaffold approach you took to giving learners the steps first to learn how to use the chat bot, you know, giving them like some helpful prompts, like what I would call like baby steps, right? Like if you're going to ask learners to use a new technology, like teach them how to use it before you just kind of expect them to, to use it. And then eventually you had them move into some more complex tasks, larger writing assignments where they had to differentiate between their writing and the chatbots writing or what I'm now referring to after I attended a webinar last week on this topic as quote unquote culture of consent and disclosure, um, mm -hmm. which is what the AI did and what the human did, right? And like either bold facing it or highlighting it or whatever. And then you also shared some really great strategies for prompting the bots to go through its own thought experiments on certain topics, like assuming positions on like philosophical debates or political perspectives, what have you. Um, I adapted a ton of this in my summer graduate seminar, which is called Technology and Society. I and mean, I share details about that in our introduction to season nine episode. Maybe, maybe you'll listen to it. Um, in any case, so how has your approach to using this technology evolved since the spring? So for me, I often tell people I'm a historian by both trade and temperament. So even though kind of I'm I'm out of my department in terms of being an administrator um but I still teach quite frequently in the history program and I've always been kind of an experimental educator in that sense I'm never going to adopt technology for the sake of technology I'm very much a visual and cultural historian of the 19th century so I'm often helping students um learn how to read images as text um as an historian, as a photo historian, I mean, I really like images are my primary 
source of constructing arguments in my own work and research. And so for that assignment you were talking about that I used in the spring, Dan, um, it was for a senior seminar on visualizing history. So we had spent the semester learning all kinds of visuals. I do a lot of hands-on teaching um, in primary source collections, the map library certainly that I um, operate, but also in all other kinds of archives. And we look at both digital um, like facsimiles of imagery and other collections, but we also as often as we can work with the physical images ourselves. And I've been really um, interested in particularly chat GPT. Um, I had played around with it a lot. So that's my approach often. Like I have to play with something myself before I can think about how I'll bring it into a classroom. And, um, and, I, and I always wanna have some context to being able to help students with that technology as well. Like I very rarely in my own life will <laughs> ask people to do things I'm not willing to do myself. That's actually a key kind of touchstone of my leadership just in general. Um, but I've been intrigued by, by chat GPT in particular um, as a way of, believe it or not, kind of getting context right? What can you ask? I often say it. I don't know, Dan, if you learned in your webinar, I, I do refer to the chatbot as it. Um, but asking, you know, asking it, can you explain XYZ concept to me as if I was an eighth grader, as if I was a first grader, right? And as someone who teaches 19th century American history, I test it a lot in my field. I would recommend folks do that. Um, see what it knows, right? Because it it has read and processed all of this information up until the year 2021, books, websites, all sorts of things. But it's not trolling the web looking for live answers. It's kind of like what you're doing when someone asks you a question you're scrolling back through all the knowledge you hold and can retain making connections and then saying, oh, hey, this is how I would explain X, Y, Z. And for history, it is most often doing that in like three to five paragraph essay style, even when you don't ask it to. And so it's giving you an introduction, kind of giving you a little bit more detail in the body and then bringing it home in the conclusion. So I would say, oh, explain to me the major causes of the civil war from, you know, 1861 to 1865, or walk me through the process of Maine's separation from Massachusetts in 1820. And it's very good at spitting out like a skeleton, like an infrastructure, but it's not so great in incorporating evidence right? Like specific evidence from readings and things like that, unless you tell it to, and it gets a little better at it. But I, I kind of figured out that, that the chat GPT bot and my students have kind of the same limitations in some ways. And I could develop an activity that would allow them to take a basic infrastructure, kind of like, you know, your average, if you're grading, I often grade on a one to 10 scale, you know, like that spits out a seven and a half, right? That's a perfectly good seven and a half, eight. It's a perfectly good B minus C plus. It's a really good summary and overview, but it doesn't tell me about how you've reckoned with the information in any significant way. It doesn't tell me that you've done the reading. It doesn't tell me that you've thought any more beyond the basics. And so I wanted to do an experiment with, okay, let's all ask it the same three questions right about working with world war one posters and propaganda and art it's a pretty it's a pretty standard concept that people would you would analyze world war one propaganda posters to talk about both their kind of propaganda message and them as an art form and then have it spit it out and then you know based on the four articles we read the posters we looked at together in class, the significant discussion we had together in class, take that and then in a different font, in a different colored font, make it a better essay, right? Add in the evidence, add in quotes from the text, 
And then, and I think the best part of the assignment, as it often is, is like the reflective piece. So do that. But then at the end, I want you to write a paragraph or two reflection on, you know, what you, how this experience was for you. Did you like using ChatGPT? What are the limitations? Where did you think it would be useful? That was the richest. I mean, they did a good job with the assignment, right? And it, and it sort of also, I think, showed them, oh, I get it. Like, I kind of get what you say now that you want us to go beyond just the basic, here's the response to the question. Now I understand how to bring in the evidence, how to tweak my conclusions, because like, yeah, it's conclusions aren't very specific. Didn't really bring in any evidence. I'm like, mm, sound familiar? Um, <laughs> that's often what I'm writing on people's papers. You know, be more specific, bring in more evidence from the text, draw more analytical conclusions in your own words at the end of the paragraph. And they were like, okay, we had to do that with ChatGPT. Now I know, you know, it's not a magical writing cure, but for people who are a little more advanced on in their degree, they could really see that separation, which I think was important. But my students had very mixed reactions to using ChatGPT. Some of them who didn't have a significant background in history who were taking it for an art history elective were like, oh, I can now ask ChatGPT to give me a basic summary of a historical event before we're looking at the visuals. And that's so helpful to me. Others were saying, oh, I run, because Lauren, I'm sure this is probably the same with a lot of your students, but a lot of our students at USM work full time. And our average sort of age of a student is 24, 25. It's not in any given class, I'm teaching people from 18 to 80. Um, so we have a lot of people working full time. I had other students who were like, I run my own business. I'm never going to write my own marketing content again. <laughs> I'm just going to ask ChatGPT to do this. And some other folks were like, oh, yeah, it's really good at writing programs for spreadsheets or spitting out code. But none of to to a person. And it was you know an 18 or 20 person seminar. None of them were like, yeah, no, I'm not going to use this to like spit out an essay and pretend it's my own. They didn't like its its generic voice, yeah. right? That was their biggest kind of takeaway was it doesn't sound like me. It doesn't have a style. It doesn't have a personal style. It's very, you know, is it right? Often, Sure. I'm, you know, and I would teach them to fact check and do all those things. I never trust anything that anyone spits out, whether it be a computer or a human, without checking it myself. But they were like, I really did. There were some students who are very good writers and professional writers who were like, I hated this because it was so hard to turn this into something that sounded like me. I'd rather start from scratch and generate my own work. So, it was a really useful, like it was very generative, you know, to go back to that, that word kind of at the, you know, the heart of your season. It was a really generative experience because we could have a discussion on what you might do with it and what you wouldn't. None of them had the same reaction to using it, but all of them had a reaction to using it. And none of them were sorry they did the assignment. They were like, I had been wanting to try this, but I hadn't tried it yet. Whereas I think in high school, you know, if I were teaching a whole class full of freshmen and I was teaching that, you know, this fall semester, it might be different because I think a lot of high school kids have used it. My daughter teaches high school history full time. And like, I think they have a lot of issues with kids handing in chat GPT, you know, like assignments for academic integrity. So I think what we might have coming at us as college professors is a lot more folks who have used it to do that from the start but for students who have gone through most of an education without it they were like cool tool doesn't really sound like me here's how i'd use it in practical ways enjoy the assignment if that makes sense that's helpful that you said kind of what's coming down the pipeline i often look to k-12 through education to help me better understand the characteristics of students because i feel like the material isn't like changing drastically but the ways in which we have to adapt our teaching to the changing student characteristics changes a lot so it, it i hadn't even thought about that if they're just turning them in and i don't know how they're processing 
grading in that space, they might get to us and be like, but chat GPT wrote this and it was fine in high school. I don't understand why it's a problem now. You know, we might have those issues and, and may not be, and there may be a misalignment between their understanding of college and what's acceptable and what was acceptable in high school. My, or well, yeah, what was acceptable in high school. My students often struggle with that. I live in the 1000, 2000 levels and there's a lot of, here's what college actually is versus what it might've been or what your perception of it is. Um, especially from like parents who have been out of school for 20 years. I'm like, I love y'all, but y'all can't really give advice in this space because y'all were in line with me at the registrar's office to register for classes you know, you weren't on a portal registering for classes. Um, but, you know, there are a couple of things that you said that were that stood out in this space. Like you said, first play around with something. I went to a training our teaching center offered for like 25 people. And it was about chat GPT and, and how to plan your semester. And I was floored that maybe five or six people had tried it. Everybody else did not try it. And, and one person thought it was like a physical location. They had to go to a certain computer on campus to get access to it. So I was like floored because I was like, well, like, uh, you know, I, I wonder with development centers, what language they're using to describe this. Like you said it, you know, so that kind of blew my mind. Um, but I also, from a media background, I'm skeptical. So in, in public relations, you got to have two sources. I'm skeptical about anything. So before I tried it, I listened to a lot of teaching podcasts to see what what the hype was. Were, were we... Were they their headlines like college students going to use this for every assignment? That was like the alarm. But in reality, when you listen to it, it was play around with it, see how it works, openly talk to your students, write your policy on it. And, and I looked at it as it's another piece of software that I've got to introduce to my students. And how can I introduce it into their process for learning broadly. And that helped me kind of discern what I was going to do in terms of activities. Um, and then the last thing I found, and this is super helpful for a college problem, is it reduces the anxiety students have. So a lot of my students, like, you know, they get their shoulders get all tense when I tell them they got to write something. And so I'm like, all right, well, let's play around with chat GPT. And, and it's it's useful for kind of establishing a framework. But I had students who were like, no, it's not going, it's not going to write my paper. I'm not going to let it do that. And I had other students who fully let it write their papers. And when I was grading, I was like, there's no way you know this word. There's no way you're going to use it. Like this is this is not too good, but for what I've seen of you consistently, this is inconsistent. And it opened up the door for a conversation around how using something like this is going to reflect on them. So, so it feels like you're in history, I'm in public relations leadership. There's very similar takeaways from that teaching process, I think, that can be applied. Which is really interesting, I think, even across our disciplines. And even, Dan, to hear you say that, you know, I'm often an early, not even necessarily early adopter, but I'm an early test tester, user experience type of person. And I don't always choose to adopt the thing. And I feel, Lauren, like what you were saying, it it's such a disruptor, right? It's kind of everywhere in the higher ed, ed universe in general. I needed to understand what it was. And sure, I read a bunch of articles about it. I'm, you know, I sort of did my disciplinary practice got together some context, read some different articles, how are people using it? But for me, I had to play with it. And I, it was fun because I think the more people who play with it from different disciplines, like the more you see what it's capable of and what kind of fun you could have with it in a classroom too. And you can play against it. Like, all right, I just asked it to write some overly sentimental poem or song about Maine history, what does it bring up? And students would read it and laugh and they'd be like, all right, I can do better than that. Like, let me see what I can come up with. But I think it's fun to play around with it. But, you know, Dan, I, from what you said, um, you know, from you using it in your graduate level um, class, I also had some folks reach out to me after that teaching presentation who were teaching 100 level college writing. And they adapted the assignment to something they were doing as well. So, you know, I think it's it's helpful to me as an educator to know that, hey, I played with this thing, came up with a seemingly basic, but, you know, fairly scaffolded assignment. It makes me happy that it helped other people kind of do and think through some of the same things. Because 
I want students to know that I know, like I teach history of American popular culture. I may not choose, like, I don't use TikTok, but I know what it is. <laughs> I know what it does. Um, I try to keep really current on all of these, these trends in that sense. Um, but by the same token, I also try and, you know, filter out what I'm going to use. I can't, I'm like, can't bring in all different things all the time, I guess, in terms of experimenting. I really pick like, is it aligned with what I'm doing in the rest of my class? Can I integrate it into the larger construct of what we're doing? Will it help students like play around with something they're trying to figure out themselves? Okay, then it makes sense to, to bring it. But if it's just... I think it's here to stay. I think that's why I brought it in. I don't see it going away. And that's why I felt like I really needed to not only experiment it, experiment with it, but also make it a part of my pedagogy in a very open way so students and I could experiment together. If I'm not sure if something's staying, you know, like a la the laser disc or something. <laughs> Remember when those came in and out, like for a brief second, mm -hmm. they're going to replace videos. No, they didn't. Um, but if AI is here to stay and we're here to stay as college professors, then I feel like you don't have to adopt it, but you also can't bury your head in the sand about it either. And that's kind of where I landed on that last spring. Yeah. It's so interesting to be able to almost in some ways, kind of like you're Flip the classroom with ChatGPT is like an intermediary, right? It's like, hey, before right, right in between the flipping, hey, do this work, check out this video, this these cases, this you know, read this chapter. Okay, now have any questions instead of emailing the professor? Hey, I asked ChatGPT a couple things. You know, can you get a little bit of clarity there? You know, before you jump in and asking it to explain things to you and in, in different from different mindsets or different perspectives or or contexts. A and then I think B. One of the things we talk about a lot as leadership educators is this role we take as a role model, right? And so, like, how can you expect your students to do anything that you won't do yourselves? And so, one of the things that I think you you may have you may have um, just kind of like snuck in during your workshop that you did back in in May, um, or that I heard on a podcast or a webinar or something. I really have just like been anything I can get. I've been like a sponge for this AI stuff was trying it out myself and 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 showing my students examples of work that I've been doing, whether it was in my consulting work or in my teaching work, or like asking it to create a rubric based on an assignment that I copied and pasted from my syllabus. Like what? Like you just saved me like 90 minutes, like, or more, you know, I mean, it's just, and just empowering students to use it responsibly and ethically. And, and it has been a game changer. And I'm really, I'm thankful to you for kind of, I, I guess, demystifying some of it and, and allowing me to kind of like have it as a meal from a pedagogical perspective. And then, um, and then I've been spitting it out with my students and with my colleagues probably since then, because I was curious about it, but now I'm, I'm finding myriad pedagogical applications for it. Yeah, it's a tool. I mean, my life, my reference librarian has found incredible applications for it in a lot of his back end, like metadata work Yeah, in terms of shortcuts that it can create. But I agree with you. I know teachers at the K through 12 level who it's really great for asking it to like produce a skeleton of a lesson plan, not producing the content, but for helping with the structure. So I think, yeah, as a time-saving tool used responsibly. And I think it's that ethical component where it gets interesting. And with your forthcoming, like I, I co-authored this lesson with chat GPT, right? You know, I think teaching students and they're often mystified. We're like, wait, I can ask for help. I can use that tool. I'm like, yeah, you can use that tool. And guess what? You can also like talk to reference librarians and you can use all other kind of tools that will make your life easier as well. And I think the more we model that for them and with them, like the more comfortable they're going to feel like engaging in that as well. I love that y'all shared ways in which it's used in practice. So in, in, um, public relations, we, I talked to our adjuncts and some said they used it. Some said they had to ban it. And so it's interesting having those conversations as well as there have already been, um, a, like, a text generating apps that are already used. So I introduced chat GPT in my news writing class. And then I was like, but just so you know, when you get to public relations writing that course, you'll use 
this software, which is very similar to ChatGPT, it's a, a paid subscription platform that public relations folks use so that as 10 different people are working on content, you put your content in and it writes in the organization's voice. And the more you input and give it feedback, the better it gets at writing in the organization's voice. So I'm like, you're mad at ChatGPT. However, when you get to your internship, you might have a subscription to this platform. So, so it allows us to have those conversations about inconsistency in professional use and maybe what ways they're going to see it. Like I try to tell my students, what I don't want to happen is your first job, you get there and say, nobody at Temple taught me about X. Like we're trying to expose you, but also understand there's some things that you're going to have to learn in that role or some new things you're going to have to learn. We'll always have software, but do you have a process for deciding how it goes into your larger writing process? Like that's my job. And so it's been helpful in furthering some of those conversations. Um, I also go back to... so. Outside of leadership, I feel like some faculty don't see their role as a classroom leader. Like they may see their role like in leadership and moving up and maybe into the administrative side, but really is leading in that classroom and modeling the way is something that all leadership educators know from, from an older leadership framework. But I love the opportunities that you're talking about to model in your classroom. And I think that's important. Um, I know that there are stories in history, like how do you kind of use chat GPT or, or how do you model the story component in your teaching? Um, either, either generating or just understanding the stories they're reading about what's happened in the past in terms of. That's such a good question. I, I think I'm always looking to help them understand the multiplicity of narratives that go into making your own, you know, and, and the whole, the whole danger, you know, of us, of a single story. Um, and I think one of the ways I Dan had mentioned that I was recently named university historian and one of my my jobs in that role is to present the history of the institution to a variety of folks maybe it's um new hires in an HR training maybe it's students maybe it's a board I recently presented it to the board of trustees for the humane system when they were down on our campus but when I do my full presentation of the history of the University of Southern Maine I call it a history of USM. I like, I definitively don't call it the history of USM because if I'm going to, I mean, my job as an historian is to be able to hold disparate things in my head. Um, this may be true, but this also might be true. And they, those might be two totally conflicting pieces of information. So we are gathering all of the narratives we can first-hand accounts, primary sources, secondary sources, tertiary sources, when you were talking about, you know, having some colleagues banning the use of it. Well, that's the quickest way to guarantee that people will use it. Um, but historians and others always used to ban Wikipedia too, when it was new. And I never saw the point in that because Wikipedia is built off the same model as like the Enlightenment era French encyclopedia of the 18th century. Like it's just a compendium of information. It's a tertiary source. Like I'm going to go to Wikipedia to quickly brush up on something and say, oh, I don't know much about that time period. Let me read an overview. Okay, great. Am I going to stop there? No. And that's the difference. I mean, that's really with the teaching and modeling with students and narratives. Like, in history, there are always, we really shy away from kind of two things. <laughs> One, like single cause narratives, rarely. But also, if this one thing hadn't happened, then the outcome wouldn't have been different. It would have been different. We can't do that in history. We can't be like, well, if JFK wasn't assassinated, then the United States probably would have not gotten so like all consumed by the war in Vietnam. Like he would have kept us out of it more. We don't know that. We can only go back to the things that did happen and really focus on the multiplicity of voices around those. So I think with storytelling in history, history tries to be objective. I mean, that's really like the goal of the discipline. But we're subjective individuals. We're always going to be seeing things through the lens of 
where and how we were brought up, race, socioeconomics, religion, gender identities, you know, we bring all of these lenses with us to anything we read. That's the exciting thing about teaching the past and working with these sources. I love someone who's in leadership, in engineering, in history, in art, in science, looking at the same sources and saying, oh, well, I see this. I see this. I see this. Great. What's common in all the things that we're reading? Okay. There's one thread that seems to keep coming back. All right. Let's make that as a base. And then decide the stories you want to weave into it. Um, I really get at that by connecting people to local. I'm a public historian. I like telling stories that are broader to the state, to the country, to the region, to the world, but through a lens of what people are intimately familiar with. So if I was going to, you know, go out and talk about like the market, the history of the market revolution in the mid 19th century and talk about the building of canals and trains and transportation and the impact of folks, then we would go walk outside like the path of the old canal that connected, you know, Sebago Lake to the ocean. Like I try to teach outside as much as possible. And I also try to connect with local stories so students don't feel so distant from the past. That's that's a big hang up in history. Like, how is this relevant to me? This happened 300 years ago. Like this has no bearing on my life today. Well, if you can see how it had a bearing on the place that you call home or the people who you know you call your family, then oftentimes it kind of softens you up to get more of that that narrative right? Like both the personal and the more like objective. Here's what happened in this place at this time. Okay, great. But like, how did that make people feel? Right? What happened because of it? What else can it be connected to? Um, But it's those personal stories, like people's own personal histories, like their stories that often draw people to want to study the past. I could listen to people talk about their own personal history all day. And that's sort of where it came from for me, I think. Yeah. No, I love this. And I mean, I, and, and this draws me to one of the other um, things that, that you're, um, that you're uh, also becoming famous for as, as, as I'll say, um, you know, as you, before you were talking a lot about using, and, and I guess developing the, the, well, call like the visual literacy of, of students, right? And like using images and interpreting images, using them as mediating objects to enhance learning. And so I think about your work with the Ocean Map Library, like maps are loaded with stories, right? I mean, if a, if a picture is worth a thousand words, a map must be worth a million words, right? And and so one of the things that I, that I love that you've curated, um, I guess maybe pun intended as it's a, it's a library slash museum, um, is these, these teaching with maps grants and this program that you've been facilitating since you, you've been there. Would you join in 19 or 20 would, would be my guess? 20? Oh, f- 2018. 2018? Oh, I know. Wild. Okay. I can't believe it's been that, been that long. And, and so I, I was geeking out on that because I had the opportunity to teach um, a leadership in a 2020 elections seminar over the summer. It was an elective. My background, I, I don't talk about this much on the podcast, but my master's was political science. And I taught that for many years until I moved to Maine in 20, 2012. My, I got my teaching chops teaching in community colleges, intro to political science, state and local government, American government. I just love that stuff because I had worked in government myself in the House Appropriations Committee in Tallahassee. I'd worked on gubernatorial and school board campaigns. I was a town, well, and most recently I was a town counselor in in a little town here, Brunswick, Maine for three years, but that's slightly not relevant. But um, so anyway, with the teaching grant, which I was awarded during that summer, I was bummed when the pandemic happened because I was like, oh no, students aren't going to be able to physically visit the Osher Map Library, which has stuff going back to like our colonial founders of of the US. I mean, just like crazy collection, right? But like without missing a beat, you circle back to me with so many ideas around some of the digital archives. Y'all were like speedily documenting things and moving special collections into digital collections. And one of the big ones, well, the two big ones that that I ended up utilizing, which I'm so appreciative of you for suggesting, there was the Kazan or Kazone uh, Americana. I want to make sure I'm pronouncing that correctly. Oh, the Kazon. Kazon. Yeah. Okay. I, I missed it three twice. Um, the Kazon Americana collection, which were 
political works of early America, um, as well as documents related to slavery. And then there were some 19th century election maps, as well as some from the 68 election, which we used to compare and contrast. Students, like that became a fan favorite among the students. They as we were looking at things like the electoral college campaign strategies, like platform talking points, like I can't wait to teach this again in 2024. Um, and I will be submitting another grant app, um, but don't let that influence you. Um, but um, like maps, like using maps to not repeat history, to analyze, to tell stories, like what's your reaction to all that, Libby? So we're so lucky in the Osher Map Library and Smith Center for Cartographic Education. So for folks listening, I know you have a wide audience from all over the place. So we have a public website, which is OsherMaps.org, O-S-H-E-R-M-A-P-S.org. So we have our collections vast. We have half a million maps dating back to 1475. Um, And my, the library that I now run, um, we started digitizing more than 13 years ago. So we were early adopters of collections digitization. So we have over 90,000 items from our collections that are fully digitized and online. We do all that in-house. I have folks whose full-time job it is to make the collection more visible and accessible for folks. We believe in kind of radical welcome in our collection. We want people to have access to these materials. We don't watermark things like they're there for you to use. And one of the things that was my job when I was brought into this particular position was to make us more distinctly connected to the curriculum of the university. So we were seeing about 15 university classes a year when I came in in 2018. And last year we saw almost 200. So we see about 200 university classes a year. We see about 6,500 K through 12 students. We have a whole arm of K through 12 education. I have two full-time K through 12 educators as well. And we see folks as diverse as, you know, certainly history and political science, but also nursing and social work and biology and English as a second language. Like maps can be applied as a hands-on learning tool for any subject anyone is teaching. And often what we're doing is using historic items to foster contemporary discussion in the same way you were with elections, Dan, because it's sometimes it can be difficult to talk about a contemporary election, right, in a classroom that can get easily politicized. But just, you know, to give you an example, 19th and 20th century geography textbooks, we have a huge teaching collection of how people taught history and geography for the past few hundred years. All of the early textbooks have a chapter called Races of Men. And we often use those chapters as a way in which to talk about structural racism in contemporary education like where do you think this came from it came from the things that people were learning as facts based on pseudoscience in the 1840s and 1850s and so students much more readily can point to this and be like this is awful like this i said okay then think about the textbooks you grew up with like how are they the inheritors of this where else do you see this oh, well, if people were learning this, then how did they behave in society? Well, they can kind of connect the dots. And it's easier in some ways. I mean, I'll put easier in quotes. They're they're critical and difficult conversations that need to be facilitated by professionals, right? But students want to talk about this stuff. And it feels different than talking about their own experiences. But it eventually leads that way. So we do. We offer these semester-long fellowships to faculty. They're $1,000. They kind of seed people's work in the collections. So you bring your class to us twice. We give you a full orientation in the collections. You have to incorporate the collections into an assignment. And then you have to write a reflective piece at the end about your experience. And it wasn't, it's not like a way to pay people to use the collections, but rather to introduce them and to honor faculty's time of taking on a new pedagogy that may be unfamiliar to them and then consistently incorporating it into their class. So we see folks come in with these fellowships, then they get a fellowship and then they keep coming back each and every semester. And we do about 20 fellowships a year. So we're always you know, bringing new fellows. And also it's really important to me, these are open to full-time, part-time, contingent, you know, anyone who's teaching at USM in whatever way, early career, late career, mid-career, grad students, undergrad, we really want them to be wildly accessible to folks. And it's been a really successful 
program, both for our own, you know, like growing people's use of the collections pedagogically, but also the way in which people's own work is changing because of the way they do this. So it's been really fun. But yeah, teaching with maps is something that we're, uh, that's, that's kind of what we're known for. We're a teaching collection, um, but we're happy to kind of bring that to other folks who are interested at other institutions as well. Think too there in the classroom students can be hesitant or have like anxiety around that but when you see a map and you're you've seen it before you know how it works but then you get a little creative and and you you allow the faculty to take students down a different path like I think about one of the the things I teach in my comm leadership class is public leadership and so my first thought was I wonder how a map would work in that class I think it would be pretty interesting um, the other thing I think about is uh, before you got on I was talking to Dan about a book um, an author one of my favorite folks, a guy named Michael Harriet, writes for the GRIO. He just came out with a book that talks about a different lens of history through an African-American perspective. And I was sharing with him, I'm reading it. And I'm like, I feel like I got to go read 10 more books because of the things he's saying that contradict how I learn about history. And I'm not saying he's he's wrong, but when you said that multiple perspectives, the danger of a single narrative, it, it feels like in some spaces we've been, un, we've been hearing that different narrative. So now I'm like, well, I feel like the book is good because it's sparking me to read more books about history. And I think, again, this is my context and futuristic kind of battling back and forth with each other. Um, but, I, but I wonder, we've asked you a lot of questions today. You've shared a lot of great things. Is there anything we didn't ask you that maybe you want to share or provide some insight or maybe occur to you when we were talking about a different topic today? Anything else you want to share before we close out? Sure. I mean, I think as we're closing out what, you know, I really liked your kind of contextual opening about what you're doing this season and, and taking things in a different direction. And, and I will say that one of the things that our history department here at USM is always focused on, um, and I think we'll continue to, and, and certainly how I approach my own leadership and work in these collections, like, this is very much like the work of the head, but it's also the work of work of the heart in many ways. There's a, a strong emotional reciprocity to it as well. Um, and I think where you you think about not only how people acted in the past, but how they felt. Like we really encourage people, and you see this in the archive all the time. I had and we have these amazing experiences on a daily basis with students. We were working with materials for an intro African American history class. And I have you know had talked to a student who was, you know, freshman or sophomore. She was born in Haiti. She was raised in Northern Maine. She did a lot of advocacy work in her high school level about not having access to learning the kinds of things she wanted to in an American history class and elsewhere. And so she was encountering a lot of these primary sources dealing with enslavement, dealing with the Middle Passage. And she just sat with them for a while and she came back and she said, you know, I've just never had the chance to emotionally process like in real time these materials and to be in a space where they're curated for me to do that. Like, are they difficult to look at? Yes, we make no bones about that. And we talk a lot about choosing to encounter these and how and how to prepare yourself and how to talk about it. But she was like, I just need to sit here and kind of process and have this experience. And I'm grateful that I'm in a space where we're kind of not only allowed to do that, but we're encouraged to do that. And so for me, it's also that emotional co connection to teaching, right? That this is also about bringing someone's emotional intelligence forward, not just the content of what they're learning. And I think that's really important to, to this kind of work. And also just to kind of bring it full circle, that's often what's missing from ChatGPT, right? Is the emotional intelligence, the like what makes us human. Right. And I think being able to encounter these materials in these spaces and really allow our very human emotions to be felt and processed as we're also doing the academic work is really important. So that's kind of where I'm landing with it and really where I've been going with things like in this stage of, you know, my my career, too. Right. Like I, I've just put so much more emphasis on the emotional. Um, just because I think, especially coming out of the pandemic and everything else, that's what people need. Love it. No, thanks so much for, for bringing us back full circle, Libby. And thank you so much for giving us some of your time today and sharing your insights. It's such a fascinating conversation and best of luck to you as you continue your work leading the 
the map library and as the university historian and best of luck for the academic year. Thank you, Dan. And thank you, Lauren. This was a pleasure. I appreciate being invited. Leadership educators who may have a little trouble coming up with creative learning activities to further their course and program learning outcomes are now able to meet with Dan or me to discuss the process they use to ensure engaged and inclusive learning environments. Or if you're an academic leader looking for an external reviewer, Dan brings years of experience in education evaluating leadership programs. Contact us via LinkedIn today. Do you connect with leadership educators virtually? Please follow us on social media. Search the Leadership Educator Podcast on LinkedIn to find our page. And find us on Twitter at Lead Educator Pod for episode release information, show notes, and upcoming events. You can connect with me on Twitter at Dr. Underscore Leadership. And Lauren is at M-R-S-L-A-U-R-J-B. That's Miss Laura JB. You can find the episodes wherever podcasts are available. We also encourage you to please subscribe at leadershipeducator.com and rate us five stars as the more you rate us, the easier it is for others to find us. We'd like to thank the James M. Cox Jr. Institute for Journalism, Innovation, Management, and Leadership within the Grady College of Journalism and Mass Communication at the University of Georgia. The support was facilitated by Dr. Keith Herndon, William S. Morris Chair in News Strategy and Management. And our wonderful theme music was composed, performed, and mixed by Dr. Matt White, trumpeter, composer, and associate professor and chair of jazz studies at the University of South Carolina. Check him out at mattwhitejazz.com. Matt, thank you so much for sharing your musical genius with our audience. And finally, we are grateful for the support of two professional associations that are destinations for leadership educators the Association of Leadership Educators, and the International Leadership Association. ALE, which funded the start of the podcast, continues to promote our mission of continuing conversations with leadership professionals. Check out all that ALE has to offer at leadershipeducators.org. The global reach of the ILA has helped us to expand our listenership beyond our original borders. Check out the ILA's programs and resources at ilaglobalnetwork.org.